Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is Acts chapter 15, verse 35, to chapter 16, verse 40, the end of that chapter. We will, I promise, next week be returning to our study of Hebrews. But for this morning, I decided to instead go to a passage from Acts at what I believe is a critical juncture for us as a church. This is a passage I have preached before at Christ the King, but it was quite a ways back in the fall of 2016. At that time, Christ the King was running two services each Sunday because one was in the morning at Crimson Tees on College Avenue, and one was in the evening at Blythewood Road Baptist Church in North Toronto. It was a significant time of transition and discernment for us as a church. And many of those at Christ the King then indicated that this particular passage from Acts was significant as we sought the Lord's leading for the future. So it's been a while. Many of you were not part of Christ the King at that time. But as I was contemplating whether to return to Hebrews this week or not, this was the passage that came to my mind and my heart. And so, though I rarely have done this in my ministry, I wanted to return to this text again to listen to the Lord in this part of his word. Acts, of course, is about the early church and the spread of the gospel. The full title of the book is usually given as the Acts of the Apostles. But when Luke wanted to summarize all that Paul and Barnabas had done on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, verse 27, he wrote of how the church in Antioch declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Luke's emphasis is consistent with the teaching all through Acts because Acts shows us over and over that it is God who empowers and fills and leads and directs and guides and brings about the spread of his gospel to the ends of the earth. This morning in Acts 16, we come to a text that pulses with the work of God. It is about Paul and Silas and the beginning of the second missionary journey. But as always, Luke wants to emphasize for us that it is God who is at work. The sermon will be in two parts as we look at this rather lengthy passage. First, we'll consider how God directs the spread of his gospel, with that emphasis taking us up to chapter 16, verse 10. Then secondly, we'll consider how God empowers the spread of his gospel in verses 11 to 40 of chapter 16. God directs and empowers the mission, the spread of the gospel, the growth of his kingdom. As I mentioned a moment ago, at this juncture of Acts, the first missionary journey has concluded. 
And by chapter 15, verse 35, we have also emerged from the Jerusalem Council. The point of which was to state that God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile in the gospel. So after a time, Paul and Silas decide to head north again from Antioch. It's not Paul and Barnabas now, because you heard Charmaine read how Paul and Barnabas split over how to treat John Mark. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them, but Paul disagreed. It was a serious disagreement. Verse 39 says it was a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. It is, I think, a sad moment, but I think also that God's purposes were to be realized even through that conflict. Because now it's Paul and Silas, who's a Roman citizen, the importance of which becomes clear by the end of the reading this morning. It's Paul and Silas who will be going back into Galatia to the churches Paul had founded last time, strengthening them and confirming the things decided at the Jerusalem Council. They pick up Timothy, and verse 5 of chapter 16 says, The churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So, we're in verse 6 of Acts chapter 16 now, and into the first point of the sermon, that God directs the spread of his gospel. And so that you can watch a bit uh, what's going on here, I'm, I'm going to have Stephen now share on the screen, if it works, a map. You can enlarge this map to whatever size you need to so you can see the detail, so that you can remain oriented to the geography of what's going on. Paul and Silas and Timothy know that they are to preach the word and establish churches and build up believers. But you'll see here, it turns out, they don't know where that's to happen. They had gone back to the churches in South Galatia. Some of them are on that map, Derby, Lystra, Iconium. Having done that, Paul then naturally is, is thinking about what's next. As he decides, it must be time to go to Asia as in the Roman province called Asia, which is in the western end of modern Turkey. You see it there. That seems to make a lot of sense. Ephesus is on the coast there. And Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, Sardis, Pergamus, Thyatira. All of these are cities in Asia, many of which you would recognize from the beginning of Revelation. All would be great opportunities for the gospel at this juncture. And so, Paul and Silas start to move. When God simply drops a concrete wall in their path. Look at verse 6. Luke says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, I for one sure wish that Luke had said something more about that. <laughs> what does it mean to be forbidden by the Holy Spirit? Well, we don't know. Maybe it meant a kind of inner conviction. 
Maybe it was circumstances. Maybe there were prophetic words. Maybe it was simply through prayer and worship and thought that Paul and Silas came to this conclusion. Maybe it was all of that, or maybe it was something else. But the bottom line is they know they can't go west. So they go north. It's time for plan B. That is plan B from the human perspective. Verse 7. And when they had come opposite Mycenae, now Mycenae is actually technically in Asia, but it's in the northern part of it. Evidently, Paul had in mind to keep going that way, coming opposite of it, because it then says they attempted to go into Bithynia. And you can see where Bithynia is on the map. What the map does not show is that in Bithynia, were cities like Nicaea and Byzantium, more significant places in the ancient world. Let's go there with the gospel. But, <laughs> it's really important that the word is but, verse 7 says, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So what are they going to do? The major areas in their minds have been taken off the map from their perspective. So, Luke says carefully, verse 8, passing by Mycenae, because remember Mycenae is part of Asia, they cannot work there, they went down to Troas. That is down to the coast. Only again, look at the map there. It means that they had to sort of wiggle their way along the borders of Mycenae and Bithynia until they came to the port city of Troas on the Aegean Sea. But consider this, you get a sense of it looking at the map, to get to Troas meant a journey of a couple of hundred of miles. And this is not all easy terrain. On foot we'd be talking weeks, I suppose intense weeks, of trusting God's guidance while well, they went on and on, essentially here in a blind alley. They had decided to go to Asia, forbidden. They had decided to go to Bithynia, not allowed. I do not know whether Paul was frustrated or not, but what I'm pretty sure of is that he didn't have anything else clearly in mind at that point. His ideas had been blocked. So, he just went on in the only direction left to go. Note, please, that there is no indication, nor do I think even a hint, that Paul was somehow wrong to want to go to Asia or Bithynia. It's not as if he had somehow misheard the Lord or had wrong motives or something. There's no indication of anything like that. We know the gospel was needed in those places. We know the gospel would go to those places. Even in the first century, they were significant places, but God had other intentions at this point. And I suppose then the, the point I'm making is that sometimes the Spirit leads by closing off the paths that we think would be the right ways to go. The Spirit may say, no, not there. No, not that way. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, 
This is how the Lord leads in our lives and in the church. Paul only knew where he couldn't go. And so he kept on going where he could, and he ends up in Troas. And I wonder if Troas seemed to him like potentially a dead end. You do not have to know all the details of God's call or where he wants you to be to be moving forward in his will, brothers and sisters. Note Paul's persistency here. These barriers did not cause him to give up and go home, though I don't know if he sort of emotionally felt that way. But he didn't. Because the Spirit was guiding. Paul knew that, even, only, even though all Paul knew was where he could not go by the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will move you where he wants you. The Spirit will move us as a church where he wants us. We have to attend to his direction and realize things might not be what we had planned at every turn. But we keep going. Paul and Silas did not need to know where God finally wanted them. How could they have imagined? It would be Rome or Spain or any such place, at least not yet. Maybe they would have thought that was too much. Because as I've said, what God had in mind was something more and different than they did. They're in Troas now. Troas is famous territory. Troas is about 25 miles from ancient Troy. You've probably heard of Helen of Troy, the heroes of the Trojan War, Homer, Pythagoras, many famous Greek names from that area. That's where they are. And that's where it happens in verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing beseeching him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul had wanted to be in Asia. Macedonia is northern Greece. This is a totally new area across the Aegean. As one commentator puts it, the invasion of Europe with the gospel was not in the mind of Paul, but it was evidently in the mind of the Spirit. Weeks of walking and waiting, wondering and praying, all oh, for this, they were to cross one of the great frontiers in the ancient world. The gospel was going to the ends of the earth and God was the one directing its course. And do you think Paul hesitated? Verse 10, and when we had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, Luke writes, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. They had been led negatively over a period of time. And now the dream came and Paul and the others considered it and concluded God was indeed calling them to Macedonia. And the world was changed. God directs the spread of the gospel. And it's just a footnote, but I think it's a worthy footnote and another sign of God's leading here. Did you notice as uh, the text was read earlier and I reread it a moment ago, how the narration shifted there in verse 10 slightly, where it said at beginning in verse 10, we sought to go into Macedonia. 
Why is it we suddenly? Well, it's because God had arranged for an addition to the team there at Troas. Maybe Paul had gotten sick. Maybe he went to a doctor and converted that doctor. I don't know. But this is the point at which Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, joins the company. Luke, who would go on to write one quarter of the New Testament, including Acts, was there in Troas. And he joins up. It is, again, God's wonderful direction. Now, Stephen, you can take the map down off the screen there as we move forward and, and now much more rapidly to consider the remaining events in chapter 16, where we will establish simply the second point I'm making, that God not only directs the spread of the gospel, but God empowers it. And that means that God overpowers forces that would resist it. Have a look at verse 11. Setting sail, therefore, from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and by the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. They voyage approximately 150 miles on the Aegean, and then it would be a, about a 10-mile walk inland from Neapolis to Philippi. And if you want to look at the map later, you would see that Philippi is indeed on what was called the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way was a major famous route of the Roman Empire, a 490-mile road, parts of which you can still see in existence uh, today. You go west on that road and you come to the Adriatic where you then could take a boat and connect to the Appian Way in Italy, and all roads, of course, lead to Rome. Philippi is the place to start. A leading city, Luke says, with much traffic and trade and movement. It was a wealthy city with many resources, and here the gospel lands in Europe, and so naturally Paul goes in blazing and takes the city by storm, right? But not quite. His first, stop, his first stop is a women's prayer meeting. Paul waited a few days for the Sabbath to find the Jews. What he finds is a group of women praying by the river. No synagogue, evidently, nor men, it seems. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. That is, this is where the Jews would probably have gone by the river for purification purposes. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Now, Thyatira was in Asia, interestingly, but Lydia now lived in Philippi. And she would have been a wealthy businesswoman. The best purple goods, that's not a, just a, a throwaway a detail, purple goods were for royalty because the dye used at that time to make the color purple was extracted from a kind of shellfish drop by drop. And there were lower quality dyes too, but the point is Lydia was selling to the top market here. Luke says... She was a worshiper of God. 
That would mean that she was a Gentile who worshipped the Jewish God. We don't know how, but then look at the rest of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. First member of the first church in Philippi is a wealthy businesswoman and her household. And without developing that very much, there's two wonderful elements in that. First, Lydia was a woman. Against what could it would be uh, conventional Greco-Roman, even Jewish ideas about women in that day. Paul and Silas reach out to Lydia, who becomes the first convert we know of to Christianity in Europe, and she will be a pillar of the church in Philippi. Second, note that Lydia was a wealthy woman. And Luke, more than any other gospel writer, warns us that money can be a great obstacle to faith. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But that's to reinforce the point here, you see. God does it. We can't miss that it's God's power at work here. Luke comes right out and says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is the power of God and the spread of the gospel. So the next episode... As Paul made his way another time through the city, they would be going regularly to this place of prayer. Paul had a problem. <laughs> there was a girl, a demon-possessed girl, who was used by her owners to make money because Luke says she had a spirit of divination, meaning she could tell fortunes. That was all wrapped up in, in Philippi, probably with the cult of the Greek god Apollo and the oracle at Delphi. But Luke says it was a demonic ability that she had and that her owners were exploiting it for gain. And she was driven by the devil to follow Paul. And she cried out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, which is a true statement in a way, but not at all helpful to Paul. You see, the devil in her made her shout these announcements, I think, to cloud the picture. Most high God, that language, could have been used in that context to mean Zeus or the local top God. Philippi was home to the worship of many gods. Salvation, again, would have been a generic term that could have meant a variety of things. So that I think this is Satan trying to distract from what Paul and his company are doing. Or maybe he's trying to discredit it by associating what they're doing with the occult. Whatever it is, we see clearly it's annoying Paul. And so after several days of this, verse 18 says, Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And the implication in the next verse is that this young woman could not tell fortunes anymore or would not, that God's power had delivered her from demonic oppression. Luke says, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, because that's all she was to them, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, I'm going to go on a bit of a limb here, out on a limb a bit, 
to assume something that Luke does not explicitly say, but I think that this slave girl was saved. And I think that because Luke puts her story of deliverance in between two other great conversion stories, all of which is, are designed to show the power of God at work in the conversion of people in Philippi. This girl was now free. Her owners didn't own her anymore. She didn't have a demon anymore. I think she would want to know Jesus. And Luke doesn't say it, but I think that's what we can assume was happening and did happen. So that I will assume that member number two of the church in Philippi was a formerly demon-possessed slave girl. And God has again been the one to empower the spread of his gospel. Then the third episode, in the uproar that follows the girl's deliverance, uh, Paul and Cyrus, Silas get into trouble because the power of the name of Jesus had just run up against the powers of the world and there's profit motives in play here and these, the, the wicked men who were using Lydia for gain get the religious and the political authorities all riled up and they stoke the flames, I think, of racial pride in this thing turns serious. Paul and Silas are beaten with rods. Many blows, verse 23 says. It's a severe flogging. And they're thrown into prison and their feet are in stocks. And it looked like the gospel had lost out. But God knew what was happening. Something bigger was at work here too. He's after another member for the church in Philippi, and it happens to be the jailer. So how do you get to the jailer? Well, you get your apostle in jail. That's how. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Men, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family, similarly to Lydia and her family. Member number three of the church in Philippi is a middle class employee of the Roman Empire, the jailer. God brought that man to the end of his rope. He nearly ended his life. And he had seen what happened. He knew, if he knew anything, it's that at this moment, he needed the help of the same God that Paul had on his side. So trembling, he says, what must I do to be saved? Now, I don't think that this Roman jailer was asking there for a clear explication of the doctrine of justification by faith <laughs> or some such thing. But I do think the jailer knew something about why Paul was there and the claims that Paul was making, and that Paul had acted in the name of Jesus, 
Clearly, Jesus is on the winning side here. And this man feels it at the core of his being. He wants whatever Paul can offer him. So Paul gives him an answer that addresses every level of concern this man had, and probably more than he knew. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, Paul says. That is, the Lord Jesus. Believe in the one who reigns as sovereign over all this, over all the mess of the world and over your life and over the troubles and the human rebellion and its consequences in your own desperate state as a sinner against the God who will bring everything to right. Believe in the Lord Jesus. <laughs> that is the way to deliverance. And that day the power of God claimed this subject of the Lord Caesar to be a subject to the Lord Jesus. Paul's message never changed. It would be the same thing he declared in his letter later on to this very city in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, when he writes about the day when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as we sang about before the sermon. When Paul would later write to the Romans and say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul and Silas would have explained all of that, right? It says so there in verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. That is, they unpacked what this all meant. What it is that they were talking about. We have to do that. And the man and his whole family confessed and believed and were baptized. And what a beautiful moment it is there in verse 33. And the jailer took them the same hour, it's the middle of the night, and washed their wounds. It would have been significant. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family, he washed the wounds that brought these men into his jail and saved his life. And then he was washed himself in baptism. And Luke says in verse 34, they did the only appropriate thing. They had a feast. They ate together. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, brothers and sisters, I submit to you that this whole chapter that we've quickly surveyed just pulses with the direction and the power of God. Paul and Silas did not expect to be in Philippi or anywhere near it. And having gotten there through God's leading, who were the first members of the church in Philippi? Well, it was a woman business owner from Asia Minor because the Lord opened her heart. And a demon-possessed slave girl because in the name of Jesus she was set free. And a middle-class Roman jailer who had his life turned upside down by the God who shook the very earth to bring him to faith. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Different gender backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different socially and socioeconomic backgrounds. Now united as the Philippian church, along with family members and others who were coming to join, admitted with no distinction. And the point is, God did it. That's what I want us to see. God was after those people. 
I don't know. Perhaps these would not be the first three key people you would have handpicked to start your church. But God did. God, of course, used his servants to bring it about. Acts 16 should encourage us and spur us on. Ours is the same God who directs and empowers the spread of his gospel today, and he has plans. So that everywhere you go, as God directs your paths, and everywhere God will lead us as a church in the months ahead, he has a plan, and he's after people. Do not assume you know who they'll be. Of course, we have to be willing to go. And we're not guaranteed protection from suffering that could come with the task. As Acts goes on, we'll find Paul seized and charged again and again in Thessalonica, in Corinth, in Ephesus. There's no promise of security in what I'm saying to you. But the same directing and powerful God is with us. And if we're willing, I believe he'll use us. That he'll use you and me individually. And he'll use us as a church. To rescue the business women and demon-possessed slaves and jailers of this city. Whoever they are. In the spread of his gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.